0: Yeah, at this time, we're going to go ahead and release uh, children uh, to the children's class. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up Luke, Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> you might be wondering, I thought Christmas was over, Pastor. Well, I'm here to inform you that Christmas actually lasts 12 days. I don't know if you know that. Um, the original Christmas time was a, a season, a feast uh, of 12 days in the life of the early church. Uh, so we're going to still celebrate Christmas, amen. Uh, everybody take down the Christmas tree yet? Yeah, go ahead and repent, brother. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and start repenting. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, as you're turning to Luke chapter one, um, I want to ask you if you ever imagine your life as a story. And by that, what I mean, uh, do, do, when when you wake up in the morning and you're um, and you're faced with a problem early on in your day, what goes through your mind? Do you imagine yourself as a, a story in God's creation? therefore presented with the opportunity to either respond in a positive way or a negative way? Or do you merely view all of life as merely one moment leading to the next and without any grand scheme, any grand tell of your life? Now, you see, the reality is that all of our lives are stories. All of our lives are stories. We will either be a, a story which will be held up for later generations to be uh, examples of, to be emulated be like that man. Be like that godly woman. Or we will be held up as cautionary tales. Tales that um, uh, we don't want to be like. Right? That's what the stories of scriptures are. Like, that's, that's the way we should view our lives. Right? Because, because God is an author. Uh, life is not meaningless. God is an author. He's trying to tell a big story. And, and, and we understand our lives best when we situate our story within the best story of all time, as we talked about last week. So between the creation of the world and God, all that God was doing, the fall of mankind, the redemption of mankind, and ultimately the restoration of all kind. If we can place ourselves inside that story that God is telling, then we will live the most fulfilling life. And so I I mention all this because uh, um, you guys know Joy to the World, that song? You guys like that song? I love that song. Uh, I love that song primarily because of the hopefulness of that song. Here's some of the words. Um, you, you know these. Joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come. Right? Let earth receive her king. Let, her, let every heart prepare him room. Do you, the, the beginning of the next verse says, Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Third verse, it goes on. It's more joyfulness. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite verses. It says, uh, No more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns infest the ground; he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is a this is a hope-inspiring, a hope-producing song. And then finally, the last verse is: He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his lo- of his love. And like, there's a progression in this song, right? Like, if it, just think about the words that we've sung over the last couple weeks, uh, there's a progression to it, right? So it begins with the Lord has come, therefore there's, there's now reason for joy. Um, it talks about the Savior reigning, no more let sins, right, and sorrows uh, grow, thorns infest the ground, uh, blessings flowing as far as the curse is found, uh, and it, it ends with uh, he rules the world. Like there's a progression to this, right? There's a story even in this song. But I wonder, do we, do we view our life like that? Do we view our life like that? Um, Let's look at, uh, I just got three verses for our text this morning. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. If you're there, say amen. All right, the rest of you guys can catch up. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Skip down to chapter 2. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 11. So those two verses, hold those in your mind and look at Luke chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For unto you that is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. These three verses this morning is how we'll uh, end our our incarnation series. Uh, And these verses are found early in the gospel of Luke as a means of announcing who it is that's shown up on the scenes. Uh, In both of these uh, contexts, uh, the verses are spoken on the lips of angels to the ears of mankind. Now, you see, in the first, the angel is speaking to Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus, and he's just announced to her that she will bear a son. He then goes on in these two verses in chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, um, and, and explains to her five very specific things about Jesus here. right, He says that, number one, he will be great. Right, this is a, If you look through throughout Luke's gospel, uh, you, 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 all, you constantly have this comparison of the great versus the not-so-great or the least, right? You get, it's in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke that you have the, the two disciples arguing who will be the greatest in the kingdom. This is a theme repeated um, throughout Luke's Gospel, and his, his point here is that Jesus will be the great one. He will be the great one. He also says, number two, that he will be called the Son of the Most High, right? This is uh, the angel telling Mary that this is no normal child, but rather this is uh, the child of God. He says, number three, that he will receive the throne of David. Uh, we touched on this last week and the week before, right, that, that, that Jesus is coming, that this is the fulfillment of Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, uh, that God promised to establish a kingdom on the throne of David. Number four, it says he will reign over the house of Jacob. And number five, it says his kingdom will have no end. That's important. That's important, right? So I don't, it doesn't really matter what your eschatology is or how you think the world is all going to play out in the end, in the last days. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what's in front of us this morning, which is the angel telling Mary that his kingdom, as it's coming in a baby, will have no end. And then in the second text here, in uh, second, uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, it's angels announcing to shepherds that the Savior has been born and where they could find him. What I want you to notice from uh, that, that verse in chapter 2, verse 11, is how the angel chooses to describe Jesus. Notice that it calls him a savior, but then goes on to describe who exactly that savior is. This is the, the Christ, right? The, the anointed one, the Messiah. But he says, who is also the Lord. What's important to keep in mind here is that bound up with the word Lord is the idea of one who rules or the master of someone or one who exercises dominion over something else. It's the idea of the one who is the owner of and the one who gives a command and must be obeyed. This is why if you understand what it means when you call someone Lord, you understand the irony of Jesus uh, when he's talking to the, the hypocrites. What's he say? He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out many demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The point in all of this is you can't just call Jesus your Lord and then not do what he says. That's what Jesus says there. That's what the angel means when he says this is Christ the Savior who is the Lord. Right? You you can't just do you can't call Jesus your Lord and then not do what he says. Likewise. You cannot call Jesus your Lord and then do what he says not to do. And this morning I want to spend a few moments together thinking through the reality of this fact, that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has no end. Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has no end. So, so what does this mean? How should we think about it? How can we break it down in such a way that it's tangible, applicable, not just truth that floats above in the stratosphere? How does the kingdom of God and the rulership of Christ affect our daily lives? What parts of our lives does it affect how does the reality of Jesus being Lord and God, the narrator of our stories, shape and mold us and form us, it's not, only on a, not only on Sunday mornings, but also on Thursday afternoons? The aim in this last sermon of 2023 is to pour Holy Ghost gospel hope into your spines. And I want to do this in three movements, and then I'm going to sit down because my voice hurts. Number one, uh, all the way around, all the way down, and all the way up. All the way around, all the way down, all the way. Uh, Let's begin by understanding where the lordship of Christ actually reigns at. Does Jesus reign in heaven? Or does he reign here in the material and physical world? Does Christ's rule exist only in the hearts and minds of his people? Or does it reach farther out, farther in? Does Christ rule over governments? Does he rule over the nations? Does he rule over the demonic world and the world of angels? Does Christ rule there? What about hell? Does Christ rule over hell? The answer to this question and all these questions is that Christ's rule and reign is over every person, every institution, and every nation. In other words, he rules all the way around the world. Consider these verses, Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 72 verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Christ has dominion and ownership from sea to sea. God has given Jesus Christ the world with all of its people, with all of its nations, and he rules over them all. Daniel says it like this in chapter 7, I looked and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over and burned with fire. Stands before God the Father, this ancient of days, and to him, to Jesus, is given this kingdom which encompasses all the world. You might ask, well, what if a person doesn't accept this to be true? Moreover, what if you get a group of people together who call themselves a nation, and as a nation say, we do not accept that to be true? What happens then? Is Jesus' lordship only able to go right up to the nation's borders, but no farther? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. You see, Jesus is Lord over every nation right now. The question is not, is Jesus Lord? Right? So, Oftentimes when we're talking to like unsaved people, uh, the, the question comes up, uh, um, uh, is, is Jesus your Lord? That's the wrong question. Jesus is Lord. And it's not Lord because you and I have made him Lord. He's Lord because uh, God the Father has made him Lord over all things. The question is, do we realize the reality of that statement? Do we realize the reality that he already is Lord? This applies from the highest level down to the smallest micro level. Uh, From nation states to individual lives, Christ is Lord over it all. Even if you never believe this to be true, true, even if you continue to live in a world of make-believe, where you think that you're the great author, one day your life will end and you will realize and you will see that Christ was Lord over every moment of your life. So is Jesus Lord over your home? Is Jesus Lord over your schools? Is he Lord over your workplace? Is he Lord over your state governments? The answer is, he is. His lordship runs all the way around. The angel announced to the shepherds that Christ is the Lord. He didn't say that Christ has the potential to be the Lord. He didn't say if you make it true that he'll be your Lord, but that he is the Lord. And the announcement's so beautiful, isn't it? Because Christ is so lovely and so beautiful and so true. He offers to each of us, right? Like, like the, the scriptures constantly refer to you and I as enemies of God, right? Outside of Christ, we're all enemies of God. Uh, not like passive enemies, like we don't know that there's a war going on, but active participants and enemies against God the Father, fighting him with our weapons of war. And the good news of the gospel, the good news announcement to these, to these shepherd boys is that, hey, hey, you can lay down your weapons of war. You can surrender to the, to the Lord of all. And then he promises not to just grant amnesty, not to just say, okay, well, we'll forget that ever happened. He promises to adopt us, to call us his family. You see, Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has no end. This is important, right, in the overarching story and in the life of our stories, because this sets the ending up perfectly, doesn't it? Like it isn't a surprise on how things are going to end. We aren't left to wonder, does Jesus actually win in the end or, or not? The question's been settled. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? What's the great thing about Hebrews chapter 11, anybody? It's a, it's a chapter of the hall of faith. The author talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. and all the stories, the author is lifting up these men and women of God and say, they did all these great things by faith. At the end of the chapter, he goes like this. He says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me. He was a good preacher. He knew when to wind down a sermon. He said, I don't have enough time to talk about Gideon or Barak, Samson or Jephthah or David of Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they may might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive. What was promised. So do you, do you, just think about like all the stories the author just condensed down. Did you hear the stories involved in these individuals' lives? Conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, obtaining promises. This is all because the author says that they had faith. But faith in what? Faith that at the end of the day, God wins. Faith that at the end of all time, at the end of all trials, at the end of all of our stories, that God really is the author and he really does When? You see, they believed God. Therefore, how much more should we who have now seen the victory delivered to Jesus in the resurrection and the ascension believe that he is truly Lord? You see, if all these Old Testament prophets and all these Old Testament stories, they looked forward to the time where Jesus would come and be given the victory, and they believed it and they stood steadfast, how much more should we on this side of the resurrection, this side of the ascension, believe that the Lord actually wins. You see, knowing that Jesus is Lord changes everything. It means that these stories of conquering kingdoms and enforcing justice, obtaining promises, and also the stories of being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, should be even more common in our day. Imagine someone told you they were going to give you $100,000. Where I'm from, that's a lot of money. And because they were going to give uh, you some sum of money, like they were going to be giving an inheritance, and they promised to give you, I'm going to give you $100,000. And let's say uh, they can't tell you when, but just believe it and trust it. Let's say one day goes by, and you're still believing that to be true. A week goes by, you haven't heard anything. At that moment in your story, you're, you're presented with the opportunity. Do you begin to doubt Do you begin to wring your hands? A few weeks go by, not a word. Do you keep living in faith and trust that the person will come through, or do you say, oh, well, it must have been fake news? The choice is yours to make. But let's say for at the one-month mark, your friend finally calls you back up, shows up with a a briefcase full of cash. He says, as promised, here's the money, but, but for now it's only 50K, half of what was promised. But he says, don't worry, the other money is being transferred in a little while. Perhaps now a few months go by, you haven't heard anything back, you are once again presented with the opportunity to either live in faith, believing that the rest of the payment's coming, or to walk away no longer believing. So here's my point in, in this illustration. The question is, which is easier to believe in? Is it easier to be the guy who has given the initial promise with no down payment, or to be the guy who actually has received some partial payment and only waiting the full deliverance of the rest? You see, I would argue that it's easier to believe that the rest of the money would come through after having received at least some initial payment. This is what I think the book of Hebrews is, is trying to tell us. You see, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are unable to see what you and I see. And we're still waiting for the rest of the deliverance, right? they are still waiting for um, what the psalm says that, that the, world would make, uh, the, the Lord would make the enemies of Christ his footstool. But the, the point is that like, the whole book of Hebrews is like, you guys, we're better off we've seen the initial payment. We've seen the victory already been given to Christ, and now it's just a waiting game. Jesus is Lord, and his kingdom has no end. So Jesus rules all the way around the world. Um, There's no nation over which uh, people can just say, like, well, we're a secular nation, therefore we don't believe in it. It doesn't matter. He rules in regardless. But now let's connect the rulership of Christ, not just with his rulership over the entire world, not just with your mind and how things will play out, but Let's connect the Lordship of Christ all the way down. What areas of our lives does this reign of King Jesus intend to touch? Does Jesus care how we dress? Does he care what kind of shows we watch? Does he care what type of education our children receive? What about our physical fitness? Does he care about that? Does it matter matter, uh, about how much we think uh, about the disposal of of our trash? Does he care if if we're recyclers? What about the books we read or how much time we spend on social media? Does he care? Does the fact that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom have, having no end impact all these areas of life? What does Jesus think about the person we intend to marry? Does Jesus care? The answer to all these questions, like the last, is that all of these areas absolutely matter to Christ. Because he's the king and we are part of his kingdom. Oftentimes we're tended to think that Jesus doesn't really care about all these things. Right? Isn't that, isn't that what we're prone to think about? Well, he doesn't really care. He doesn't care what we watch for TV, what our entertainment choices is, how we think about the world. But the reality is that because we, if we call ourselves Christians, are members of his kingdom and not our own kingdom, we are members of his kingdom, uh, are called to live a certain way. Now, I do want to nuance this a bit, lest you begin to hear me say something I'm not. I'm not saying that if for breakfast you are presented with the option to drink orange juice or milk, That you should have an existential crisis and be driven to paralysis because you aren't sure which one King Jesus wants you to drink. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that what you drink actually does matter. It's not a throwaway drink. It's not a throwaway line in the story of your life. It's not a random prop in the story of your life. Many people want to be given a set of rules to follow or boxes to check, but thankfully that's not what the Scriptures do. Instead, the scriptures do the following. It gives us uh, number one, it states that everything is meaningful and important. Everything is meaningful and important. And number two, it says that we're, we're to kill sin. And number three, that everything else is to be enjoyed and stewarded wisely. Let me give you two well-known verses on this matter, Colossians 3:17: "Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." And then correspondingly, 1 Corinthians 10:31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, the Word of God is teaching us that all of life truly matters. If Paul is telling the churches that in word or deed, or if they're eating or drinking, uh, to do everything and anything, then do it all for the glory of God. So go back to the example of being presented with milk or orange juice for breakfast, as many of you were this morning. You see, the drink is not a throwaway line in the story of your life. Paul wants you to know: If you are to drink it, drink it to the glory of God. Now, if we can be honest here for a minute, we're not really good at this, are we? Most times when we hear something like "whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God," we get kind of weird. I don't know why. Um, it's different being a pastor. Uh, uh, oftentimes, people like uh, kind of talk to me in pastor talk. Do you know what that is? like, oh, pastor, uh, you, know, you know, I was praying to the old oh, most holy God, you know, the Lord Almighty Christ Jesus, you know, how are you doing today, pastor? I'm like, what? What? Some of the text messages that I get, I'm just like, I don't even talk like that. Right? Like, like <laughs> we think, like, if I'm going to drink this orange juice to the glory of God, I somehow have to, like, bless it and baptize it and praise God, you know, let's, let's drink. That's ridiculous. Like, we need to be normal and ordinary. Like, like, don't be weird. Like, that's just my counsel. Don't be weird. Drink from a heart filled with joy, knowing that Jesus is Lord, and you're drinking that orange juice or that milk as a son or as a daughter of the king. You don't like orange juice or milk? Drink it anyway, but do it without complaining. Right, this is how we drink or eat or drink whatever we do to the glory of God of God. So every choice matters. Every story in your life, every twist, every turn, every decision matters because it's an opportunity to glorify God. But God does give us commands to not sin, to actively put our sin to death. This is why, like, uh, uh, like, like again, like, I'm not trying to draw stark lines, but maybe I am, right? When it comes to, like, the issue of entertainment, like, I know that was a big, lots of pastors get into these waters, and they, they, don't, they don't want to say anything, or maybe they want to go too far, say too much. Let me say this: like, if your entertainment, um, the choices of your entertainment is filled with nudity, is, is Christ honored by that? No, of course not. Of course not. Or go to the idea of the way we dress. Does it matter? Again, I've already said every choice matters. So then, what what what, what does it become? Then how we dress? I'll, I'll give you um, something that's. I've been thinking a lot about like how I've grown over the last year. My wife was I was sitting with her the other night and she said, "You're not the same man that I married." Uh, she meant it in a great way. It meant that like I've actually matured a little bit, and I was like, "Praise God, you're also not the same wife I married. Praise the Lord. Uh, but one of the things that like uh I, mean, I don't know, let's go okay, so I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have noticed. I wear a tie a lot more often these days. you know I don't know if you picked up on that. You said, "Well, pastor, does God really care? Maybe?" You see, understand that everything in life matters, and um, there's been a uh, a degradation of the way we actually dress in the public spaces. I don't know. Have you all been to Walmart lately? (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, The same thing with like boys who become men. Like boys no longer have any markers on like what it actually means to grow up into a man. Well, part of it means you dress the part of a man. I'm not saying all of us have to put on a tie and and put on you know a monkey suit. That would be ridiculous. But what I am saying is that a boy dresses a certain way and a man dresses a certain way. We should be able to tell the difference. Take women's clothing, for example. Uh, like dress, dress modesty, right? In today's culture, we're a highly egalitarian society, which means we are, form, uh, we're, like all the cultural winds that are blowing around us are all shaped by what women think. I don't know if you've realized this. Therefore, to speak as a prophetic voice from the scriptures, to say, no, no, like there are certain women, ways that women shouldn't dress. You know what they, you know what they say to people like me? misogynist, go home, you don't have any room. Who are you to tell? Just guard your own eyes, pastor, which is true. Men need not lust, but women also need not dress like hoes. Just, there it is. You see, Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon uh, tells his son, uh, he's like, hey, like watch out for the whores. That's what he says. He says, watch out for women who dress like this way. Meaning that, that, that to dress a certain way to, is to communicate. And we can deny it all we want and, and claim, like, no, 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 how I dress just for comfort, just for fill. But the Lord, this is, again, whose world is this? Is this your world or the Lord's world? Anyway, I'll move on. Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has no end. It goes all the way around the world and it goes all the way down to every corner of our lives. So I'm going to conclude this morning by thinking through how do we take the reality of Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has no end and walk in the glorious hope that this brings. In other words, how do we take all this expansive and all-invasive kingdom and lordship of Christ and begin to implement it in our lives? The, the answer is from a proper understanding of how a seed grows into a tree, and a tree bears fruit, and if you have enough trees, you have an entire forest. You see, the kingdom of Christ grows all the way up. The kingdom of Christ starts on an individual level, grows into a family level, gathers in the church, and expands into the world. You see, if we're going to live in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom has no end, then we must not start with politics or with the church. We must not start with whether we should pray in public schools or whether women should be pastors or not. We must start with ourselves. This begins by realizing that apart from Christ we are enemies of God. It begins by having our eyes open to the good news of the gospel and believing it ourselves on an individual level, being baptized as the Lord has commanded us. It begins by putting to death our own sin in our own lives before we try to put to death the sin in other people. Romans chapter 6 verse 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. This right? is this idea that like, we begin to put sin to death in our own lives. Right? We're always worried, like, how's Christ going to take over the world? How are we going to see souls saved for Christ? How are we going to see the church grow? Uh, and all of those questions are down the road from, like, how do I see holiness within me? How do I see Christ transforming me? Where, what sins do I need to put to death? This is what Jesus meant when he was addressing the, the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice that log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? By the way, people on the internet will try to argue with Christians, try to call out other sins, and they'll quote Jesus here. And it's because they stop reading, right? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of the other eye out of your brother's eye, right? So the idea is that people use this verse to try to shut us down, to say, who are you to call out sin? You got sin in your own life, which is absolutely true. But Jesus' whole point is like, no, 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 like the speck in your brother's eye also needs removed. Just make sure you don't have a log in your eye. First, Jesus' kingdom is made up of individuals who have trusted, believed in the saving work of the Savior. (coughs) Without your personal faith, you are not in the kingdom of Christ, (coughs) but still serving your father, the devil. I think most of the church in our context and in our day, uh, most of the people you work with who would call themselves Christians understand this to be true, because we live in a hyper-individualistic age, and it's here where they stop. They stop like, well, yeah, you see Christ's kingdom come, you see uh, whole civilizations start to begin to believe the gospel, to see the good news spread from house to house, uh, and they stop in the individualistic space. Unfortunately, that's where it ends for them, uh, as reign merely reigns through individuals. But remember, this thing goes all the way up. You see, once an individual has come to know and love Jesus, the next stop on the tree growth chart becomes the family. We must not only have Christian individuals, we must have Christian families. The family is the basic building block of society. Uh, This is also the reason why the family, as defined by the scriptures, is so under attack today. If you look at the marriage charts of of millennials and those younger, uh, the rate at which we're getting married is just like astronomically lower. And why might that be? Might the devil be trying to dismantle what we understand a family to be? The enemy understands that if we limit Christianity to individuals and not families, then advancement of the kingdom suffers. This means fathers, we must be discipling our wives and our children. Uh, I met this week with a good brother who um, he texted a, a, a week and a half or so ago. Um, he, he said, uh, "You know, Pastor Matt, he doesn't go to church. He doesn't live around here." He said, "Pastor Matt, like, what is, uh, what's your thoughts on God and suicide?" To which I said, um, "Why? Or, or, or what, do, what do you need to know for? Like, um, can you be a Christian and commit suicide? Yes." Is that probably one of the highest, most expressions of selfishness there is? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he was in the pit of despair. Uh, and so I, I sent him a couple of texts and he doesn't text back. The next morning he texted back and said, you know, apologizes for not texting back said he was in a low place. And I said, hey, look, let's meet together for breakfast. <clears throat> and so we we, we met together. We, you know, he lives in Cincinnati when we met. Um, and, and I just began to talk to him. Trying to understand, like, what's going on in his heart? Where's this despair coming from? Um, and, and it boils down to the uh, kind of the counsel that I gave him. is like he's responsible for his family's spiritual health. And he wasn't feeling it. And he goes to a big, uh, big church. And I kind of point out the issues. Some of the issues that sometimes uh, uh, in, in larger churches is you can have a, a, a gospel that's a mile wide but an inch deep. And I begin to like, kind of say, like, if you're going to go to such a church, which is completely fine, uh, it's your job to dig deeper in the wells of your, spiritual, uh, your family's spiritual health. And that's the role of fathers on the family. Uh, but uh, mothers, you must also aim to make your house a Christian house. We must aim to make our children Christian children who fear God and honor their mother and father. Not that we can save our children, of course not, but we can put the kindling around their hearts and hope that God would light it ablaze. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's one of my favorite verses, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, what what, what God is telling uh, through Moses to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, is that this is all-encompassing. Remember, the Christian life goes all the way down. Every nook and cranny of your life, you should think about it in Christian terms. There is no sacred-secular divide. And we should teach our children our homes should be homes of hospitality. Part of the issue of the, the failure of the household in modern times is we've, uh, ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've lost the point of the household. I'm playing on a sermon series through this. Uh, let me just say here in passing, um, The household used to be like areas of operation for Christians, areas of operations, but now uh, since most work happens outside the home, the home has now become a place where we merely consume. The house is just where we consume entertainment, consume actual food, oftentimes consuming each other. It's lost its meaning its place in society. We need to restore that. The house should be uh, the Um, we often think of like the church sitting on the, you know, like on the banks of hell, like rescuing people from, from the fire. But oftentimes we should think of our houses in that manner. We should think of our houses in that manner. So if you can get enough individuals who believe the gospel and then have, uh, begin to have Christian families who believe the gospel gathered together in a certain area, the next stage in the forest building project is the church. And church is massively important because every week we come into this place, we sing songs, and we remind ourselves of how good, beautiful, and true our God really is. Uh, Together with the Lord, we, we worship Him every week. And this becomes the life fuel for all other aspects of our life. Worshiping God weekly is the essential at every other stage of the individual, of the family, and of the world. This is why worship is central, why worshiping God is the most important thing you can do. We gather and we confess our sins in song and in prayers. We pray for forgiveness and pardon of sin. We take the Lord's Supper. Listen, we preach week in and week out from the Scriptures. And the wonderful thing is that in all of this, the Lord of Heaven uses ordinary means of gathering Christians to change us and form us into the image of His Son. Uh, I'm not a fantastic preacher. I know that about me. Now, I'm also confident enough in the giftings and abilities the Lord has given me to know that I, I don't struggle with imposter syndrome up here. I know this is where the Lord has placed me, uh, so I know I'm not a bad preacher. Uh, Some of you can just uh, not say amen there. Uh, My point in all of that is that there's been a number of times that uh, you guys have come up to me weeks or months after uh, a sermon. You begin to something say, hey, remember that time when you said, fill in the blank? And I just stare back like, I have no idea what you're talking about, bro. Uh, I blink oftentimes because it's not something I remember saying or had in my notes or anything that sticks with me. But the Lord is using it. He's working it in, in your life. He's transforming us week after week to the songs that we sing, to the messages that we preach. It also means that the church needs to be ordered and ran the way God designed it to be. This means that like as the Father rules the cosmos and as fathers we rule our own households, so men are to rule over the church. And finally, uh, the world. The next stop on the forest growth chart is the forest itself. Individuals who make up families, who form uh, who formed churches, then begin to influence the world around them. Begin to influence the civil magistrates, CEOs. Consider your vocation for a minute, brothers and sisters. Perhaps you're a scholar or a merchant, an educator or an engineer, or something else. In that vocation, you should seek to be a Christian worker. You should seek to be a Christian worker, right? We, again, all aspects. This is how we build up the kingdom Oh, Christ, we, we learn to excel in what God has called us to do. Uh, and then what happens is like Proverbs 22, verse 29, it says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. You see, we work quietly with our hands on the task that is right in front of us. Uh, this is God's appointed method for getting us to fan out across the globe. First Thessalonians, verse, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed. You see, you see the, the, the life of the Christian uh, goes all the way around the globe. It goes all the way down into every nook and cranny of our life, but then it's built, up in all, it's built up all the way up from individuals to the family to the church to governments to nation states to the world around. There's no aspect of life over which Christ does not look at it and say, that's mine. And so we should, we should, we should labor diligently. There's, there's no such thing as secular and sacred. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, in the sense of that, like, the secular society over here, which just means we're going to operate without God. Listen, is that even possible? It's not. It's not. And therefore, we should not, we should not drink the cultural Kool-Aid, which tells us we, we can't bring Christ into all aspects of our lives, into all aspects, all spheres. Christ rules them all. And so work hard, labor, believe, kill sin in your own life, disciple your families, attend church, gather, build the church, but also build companies, become CEOs, get the job advancement in your work. Work hard as for the Lord. You see, when we understand that Christ is Lord and his kingdom has no end, then our spines can be filled with that holy gospel hope. And so as we think and as we wind down another year and we face another year of 2024 A.D., which is Año Domingo, which means in the year of our Lord, right? This is 2024 years that Christ has been reigning supremely. So let's walk into that year boldly, gladly, full of joy, not complaining, uh, and and see all of our lives as a story. Like today is an opportunity. Like you have all woke up this morning, had the opportunity. Am I going to go to church today? Or not. You should think about that as a chapter in your life book that somebody will read one day. Are you going to be someone who should be emulated or someone that's a cautionary tale that should be avoided? This is how we should think of our lives in light of the fact that Christ is Lord and his kingdom has no end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the good news of the gospel. We're thankful that we are the most hopeful people. Uh, Lord, we sing songs like Joy of the World, which, <clears throat> Lord, it just talks about the, the curse being wiped away from every nook, every cranny. Thorns no longer infesting the ground, Father, Lord, that we can laugh uh, the loudest, Lord, no matter whether we're, we're rich or poor. Lord, we can laugh the loudest. We can have the most joy, Lord. That that's exciting. That's exciting. In hard times, Lord, it uh, doesn't mean we don't struggle to believe, to have faith, and yet, Lord, you've called us into this, and I pray that uh, it's by faith we would do all of these things. By faith we would uh, leave this place today and uh, choose to honor you. By faith, tomorrow we would all wake up, and those of us who work, that we would go work heartily as for the Lord, because we have faith that Christ is actually ruling and reigning today. So Father, would you help us as we go into a new year? Would you help us as we wind down this year today? Uh, May we reflect, be thankful for Uh, maybe look to how we can improve our stories uh, and and walk in faithfulness. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Brother Philip.